I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Mike Agavino is a recognized leader and pioneer in all forms of audio. He spent two decades on the front lines of media's digital and social reinvention. His career spans four decades serving as president of Cats Radio and launching Clear Channel's radio sales group for more than 1,300 Clear Channel-owned stations. He co-founded Triton Digital, which became the leading digital service provider to the radio industry and served as executive vice chairman at Podcast One, the leading podcast network where you're hearing our podcast right now. In 2016, Mike launched Workhouse Connect, a self-described influence marketing company, in partnership with Workhouse Media and Workhouse Creative. Workhouse Connect collaborates with talent to optimize and build their audience and revenue. They're deeply invested in helping the market solve what Mike describes as the podverty problem in podcasting. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Mike Agavino. We'd like to start at the beginning because we know you're from the East Coast. And um, I, I'm assuming that you were born in Islip. Am I right? I, I was only because the only real hospital in the area happens to be in West Islip or the, Islip. the best hospital. So I, I actually lived in a town called Babylon, oh, Long Island, Babylon. for second grade. What are you in second grade? Eight, nine years old? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. But yeah, I grew up in Long Island in, in a very traditional Italian family kind of setting. My mother's parents came over, so like in the 30s, so she was, in fact, she was the only one of what was nine children that were born in the U.S. My father's family had come over a couple decades earlier, but so basically two first-generation Italians raising uh, raising kids in Long Island, and I have three older, well, two older and, and one younger sister, so it was me and three sisters. Oh, my goodness. In an Italian household. <laughs> yeah, and you were a sporty kid. I love sports. We were talking uh, a few minutes ago about uh, about my wife, and, and I'm incredibly jealous of my wife because my wife works with The Dan Patrick Show, which is my favorite sports show. Yeah. And she My gets to too. go to the Final Four and she gets yeah. to go to the Super Bowl and <laughs> she gets to go everywhere that that I would love to go, but you know, played all the sports growing up, played baseball for a cup of coffee in in uh in college until I got into uh things that were more fun at that stage of life and I thought I was getting into a career in the sports business or uh sports journalism through an internship that I had had and folks that had offered me a job before I, I finished school. And when I went back up to New York after school, they offered me the position and I was incredibly excited. And sort of the last thing they needed me to do was go meet the president of the company just so he could give his check mark. Five minutes into the meeting, he had told me all of the reasons why I shouldn't go into sports and I was wasting my time if I went into that division of the company and he had a, a much better place for me and uh, a division that was going to offer a lot more diversity and growth and 
I had to do this and basically didn't give me a choice. So he sold so. you. He hard sold you. <clears throat> he liked you and hard sold you into a different path. Yeah. I, I had shaken the division president's yeah. hand <laughs> on doing a job, which was essentially selling sports sponsorships on professional and, and college teams across different sports, going into what I thought was the check the box meeting where the the real big guy makes sure that there's nothing the, the other guy missed. He tells me that that's the wrong place for me. And How do you think he knew that? Or was it just a convenience to him to put you in that spot? That's such, I love that. Because you're a young kid. I, I, well, the, the company had made a decision. And the, the name of the company at that time was Cats. I guess it was Cats Media at that point. And it was the largest independent representation firm in, yeah. the, in the radio and television business. So they sold advertising time for radio and TV stations across the country. And they had just brought someone into New York, a guy by the name of Bob McCurdy, who would become my mentor and someone I love, who's been a big brother to me for 35 years. They brought him to New York and, and Bob really was sort of <clears throat> reinventing the approach to radio sales. I mean, it was very much the media business right up until that point. I'm talking 1985 here. It was a three martini lunches, out all night, crazy parties. You're buying my stuff because you love me and we do sushi every Friday. And it was that kind of, it was slightly evolved from Mad Men. The business mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not as much it wasn't dis- it wasn't disciplined it wasn't disciplined <laughs> there was no data storytelling at all there was the, the ratings and understanding the products you were selling weren't really part of the game and so this guy came in and recognized pretty quickly that he couldn't untrain the folks that had been there for 15 or 20 years to adopt the way he wanted to approach sales and so he, my timing was was perfect. He was looking to bring in a bunch of kids right out of school and train them in uh, uh, the way he saw the business, which meant you needed to know every radio station you represented, and you had 500 of them, what market they were in, who their morning personality was, how high their height above average terrain of their uh, of their tower, their effective radiated power, every, every one of these statistics that nobody ever wanted to know or cared to know in the radio business prior to that, this guy made an absolute priority. So I have a a good brain for that kind of detail, a statistics brain. And so I took to it really well. It was not hard for me to remember all these call letters and remember who their their morning shows were, their afternoon shows. And if, if you're in New York and you're talking about a radio station in Tampa, Florida, and you know all of the talent on that radio station and you know the specifics of their ratings in different day parts and everybody else who comes in to see that that person who's got that budget, who's trying to buy that market, is trying to buy them lunch and submitting a, uh, a one sheet with some rates and some ratings – you stand out. And so you build trust is what you do. Cause I was on the buy side of that equation and on the sell side, when you can go in and reassure somebody that they're buying the right DJ and that their money's not going to go to waste. That's a pretty big. profound yeah, difference. You, you, you become a resource to your yeah. customers. And ultimately the philosophy I formed around that over time was 
you know, I could win all the ties where I didn't deserve the business. I didn't deserve the business. I needed to know that and handle it gracefully, accept a favor every now and then when someone was in a position to deliver a favor. But, you know, you're going to you're going to separate yourself performance wise in that business by winning every time it's close or winning the majority of the Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. it's close. Mm -hmm. And that's what he really helped me with. I think I was able to take it a little bit further because I could also do the uh, the relationship side of things maybe a little bit better than uh, than Bob could at that Mm -hmm. point. So you were pre-satellite radio. You yes. were still mm-hmm. doing paid radio. Yes. And so you saw the evolution of everything. I mean, you were right oh, yeah. at the pinnacle of what became the evolution of everything, which is what we have today. Oh, and, yeah. We, um, you know, we had one. You had broadcasting standards, I'm sure. You know, people couldn't use words on the radio that were, you know, like they can today where everybody's. But it was a, you know, we had one blip. The recession in 90 was the, was the one blip. But if you look at the radio industry, it was a $3.5 billion industry in 1985. 1996, when the industry was deregulated, by the year 2000, it was a $17 billion business. Went from 3.5 to 17. Went from 3.5 to 17 in the course of a decade and a half. 500% growth. In just the 90s, it, it tripled through the decade of the 90s. And that continued really until 2006 was uh, was the apex year. For you also radio. saw. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Leanne. I have a question about just radio in general. Was it a medium that you were fond of as a kid because of sports? Was there another layer, I suppose, of understanding and appreciation of radio as a medium that helped to differentiate you? It was really more the sports. Ironically, my father was in this business. Right, my father worked for several ad agencies, and then he worked for this very company, Cats, for. close to 20 years. And so I got the exposure there a little bit because he didn't bring that much home, Mm -hmm. but it was more the love of sports. And so uh, I remember getting cable for the first time and being able to watch Knicks games and, 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 and Mets games at home for TV. But for most of my childhood, it was listening to them on the radio right. and the yeah. the great voices and playing Stratomatic baseball. If someone out there in the audience might know what Stratomatic <laughs> what, was. What Stratomatic was, was, was You a, have to tell me what, what is that is. Kids, I was addicted to this game. Stratomatic? Everyone in the neighborhood played. And basically, cards would get printed on every player in the league based upon that player's prior season. How many home runs they hit, runs they drive in, their batting average, all of those things. And you would have, I believe it was three dice, one that was red and two that were white. And each person's card had three columns as a hitter and a long list, maybe 20 results under each of those uh, those numbers. So you'd roll the red if you rolled a two, and then you'd roll a 10 in total with the whites, you'd go to column two, number 10. Oh, it's a double. But but what would happen is, what would happen, what was great about this game- My husband must know this, right? Is you could play it by yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you played it by yourself, you did the play-by-play. And so <laughs> I would do- That's hilarious. It would drive my mother crazy. I would do the play-by-play of 
my Stratomatic games. And I could do it. I mean, I could do it for hours. That's so funny. Uh, and, you know, other kids a, in the neighborhood. Does this exist today, this game? It exists in, 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 in nook and crannies. I'm sure people play it. And they've probably evolved it significantly. I, I don't know how That's so they've funny. evolved it exactly. But it was something uh, I did. In fact, I, I, I was so addicted to all of this. We had a, a little basement in our house in West Islip that was half redone so that there was basically a couch, a place for my mother to iron clothes. And so she went downstairs one day to find out that I had drawn an entire baseball field. <laughs> on the floor? On her carpet. Oh, on the carpeting. <laughs> in, I guess, permanent marker. So I put little players in every position, the mound, I mean, the whole thing. Mm. I drew on her carpet. And That's so funny. It's one of the things that I can remember getting in the most trouble for as a kid. But my, my sisters, especially my two older sisters, had each other. They hung around together constantly. And, you know, I had friends, but back then, you know, you would spend more time alone. Well, you were Italian, too. I mean, dinner was a big deal in your house. Dinner was everybody a sat must. around you the had table. to be there. You were outnumbered. Sunday there were four women to two men. I 8,000 calories, whether you wanted them well, yeah. or not, shoved down. You wish for the <laughs> Growing up in that kind of uh, environment on Long Island, uh, on the surface, it was very different, particularly for my father, who had a uh, a crazy upbringing and had been through a lot with his father, who he had no respect for, and there was a lot of tension there. They didn't live close to us, but but he carried all of that with him every day. So he had a short temper, he had incredibly high expectations, and I had a lot of performance anxiety with my father. Like, but you were also the only boy. Right. So if I'm, I'm pitching in a Little League game and I'm sailing through the first three innings, maybe I have a no-hitter going and I've struck out eight guys, I see dad's car pull up, and immediately I start walking people. <laughs> That's, um, and I would have yeah. you know, coaches come out and say, don't look at him. He's not here. Pretend he's not here. And I can remember the, you know, the individual games where I kind of finally got over that. Did, did you, I mean, it sounds like you had wonderful mentorship from coaches too, just in terms of understanding the situation and helping to navigate you through it as adults, sort of saying, it's okay. Yeah, I, I did. The greatest thing my father did for me was making me leave because I had opportunities to play baseball locally for schools in the New York area. My best friends were, uh, were playing for schools in the area, so I wanted to be with them. I had just started dating a girl who it got very serious with right as I was graduating from high school, and so I didn't want to go away. And, and he really made me, didn't give me any choice and, and basically pulled into the dorm circular driveway, screeched to a halt, opened the trunk, threw the suitcases out and screeched out in, in a halt. I mean, wow. it was, it was, it's your time to, to figure this out. Right. And so, you went to Vandy. You went wow. to Vanderbilt. Vandy, yeah. So let's go back. Yeah, to, let's go back. Let's go back to radio. Let's go to satellites because satellites were one of the sort of turns of transformation. And then we'll move into the latest sort of pioneering you've been doing. So you're in the business when satellite hits. It's really not a big deal. And it's not a big deal because the business model is so differentiated from the over the air business model, whether it was before the merger or post-merger, 
even to this day, SiriusXM has, I think, 30 million subs. You're ta- when you talk about the merger, you're talking about the merger of Sirius and XM Satellite yes, Radio. Yes. So, but even today, they've got 30 million subscribers and a financial profile that looks better than any radio company in existence. But because the advertising piece is such a small piece of what they do, they're not really a factor in the advertising market. In the early days of satellite and satellite gaining subscriptions, it didn't have any impact on the over-the-air radio market because the audience levels were still pretty similar according to the third-party research companies. And it wasn't like an advertiser could really take budget and splinter budget off Mm -hmm. for SiriusXM. Satellite radio did not cannibalize over-the-air radio to a great enough extent that it, that it was seen as a threat to ad revenues that transact inside the over-the-air space. Exactly. But wasn't and, the big defining moment when Howard Stern left and went to uh, Sirius? No, I think the big defining moment for radio was really uh, the deregulation of the industry. It was really the defining moment. You went from limitations of 11 a.m. and 11 f.m. stations to no national cap on how many you could own. And depending on market size, you could own as many as as 10 stations. And you could also do local marketing agreements to sell the advertising of other stations you didn't own. So deals were being done where there are a bunch of signals that come out of Mexico that penetrate the San Diego market that American companies were leasing and branding as U.S. stations and selling advertising on. And so what Clear Channel eventually bought in San Diego uh, was something like 14 stations at the point that they, they bought it. And so that kind of consolidation really led the most dramatic change in the, in the business. What the Howard thing did, and, and I was a huge Howard fan, and, and my loyalty to Howard is an example I use all the time with folks in the podcast market because to me, Stern in his heyday is the closest thing to what happens in podcast. I was so incredibly loyal to that show that Howard had a guy, uh, Fat Wayne Siegel, they called him. (laughs) He was the general manager or general sales manager of legend Porsche Audi Saab Sterling in Amityville, (laughs) Long Island. And Howard didn't do car dealer ads for Legend. He had basically sessions where he just ripped Wayne apart in his life (laughs) and just made fun of him for a minute or two minutes on the air. Eventually, the guy's sort of morphing into a character, the show. And when I decided I wanted to buy a Saab, I drove 15 miles out of my way to go to Legend Porsche Audi Saab Sterling in Amityville, Long Island, (laughs) and bought that Saab. And for three years, I drove 15 miles out of my way for every service appointment, all to say thank you to Howard for the laughs. And that thing that happened then almost doesn't happen anymore in over-the-air radio, but it happens every day in podcasts, and it happens across not only the most popular podcasts, but it happens with podcasts that no one's ever heard of. Right. There's an intimacy that takes place that is impossible in any other medium. And it's sad what's happening over there, radio, because it's a consolidation of the business that's taken away 
the potential for an individual personality and for that intimacy. Yeah, it's also become so biased. I mean, the, the radio business today is so biased. It's very difficult to find the Howard kind of, you know, entertaining format that you can listen to. But the business— Like Rick Dees was. It's a combination and, you know, Adam of a Carolla. ton of factors, guys. But you have the economies of scale of owning— 800 and some odd stations that iHeart owns uh, owns today. And when you look at a business like that, the more of a big box retail kind of, you know, homogenized mentality you can bring to it, you can, you know, significantly lower your cost base. And so after the industry hit its peak in 2006, you know, when you got the iPhone the next year, you got Pandora, you got Spotify entering the US, you have satellite taking more audience. And so you have combination of audience attrition, you have the addition now of alternative audio channels, and you now have localized digital media alternatives from AdSense to Facebook, which began to invade the local. So there were dramatically more competitors for each ad dollar, radio, is going after it with a smaller audience than radio's ever had. So the ability to charge X became more difficult. So rate structures had to collapse. What did the industry with its debt loads do to battle that? They extended and expanded their inventories. So instead of, if we looked at the circumstances, we would say, well, the intelligent business maneuver would be to lower your overall inventory levels less commercial breaks and, you know, program strictly for customer, for listener satisfaction. They went the other way. Right. They went the shovel 200 pounds of crap into a, a 50 pound bag. And so that did a lot of damage. It has done a lot of damage. So, so you have all of these competitive options coming into play and the reaction to those because of the financial straits of the companies was to not all of them, but certainly the public ones and the and the larger ones was to contract, uh, was to expand their inventory bases so they could squeeze more advertising into a listener hour. The way the measurement service works sort of gives them and has given the industry a little bit of ground cover on that for a while because of how it uh, uh, it measures, but but certainly the the industry is in a very challenging position right now. But yeah. I want to I don't want to skip over your how we know each other. I really want to talk about what led you to doing Workhouse Connect and how did that happen and how did you put yourself into a position where you sit at the crossroads of what people listen to today and you have enormous success on your platform. So you you started Workhouse Connect. Yes. In what year? In 2016. So you're, you're an early forebearer of an industry that is quickly becoming crowded. Because five years ago, you'd say the word podcast and people would say, what? Today, everybody wants to have their own podcast. We, of course, are going to be in the top percentage yes, of podcasts. Yes, you are. Yes. Well, what, anything what, less than that. What happened to work. me is I didn't like a lot of things that were happening on the broadcast side. And so in 2005, I partnered with... Uh, with actually a longtime competitor in the radio business and formed a company called Triton Digital. We talked about CATS before. CATS would eventually, in the post-1996 telecom bill roll-up of the radio industry, would end up being acquired by Clear Channel, now iHeart. Clear Channel had gone from owning 30 stations to owning 1,300 in a four-year period. Wow. 
unbelievable. So in a six-month period, three of the top five companies in radio merged together. J-Core, AM, FM, and and Clear Channel were all merged together in a massive shotgun wedding. So imagine all of that turmoil going on in all of those markets where they overlapped because there was significant overlap of uh, portfolios. They buy it. They they come together. There were more than one station in that market. The reason that they were merged was because the ownership caps were lifted and you could now own a lot more in the market. And so they went from being competitors in market to being brought together. But back in the day, each radio station had a general manager or a president, whatever title they gave. But there was one individual running just about every radio station in the country. Sometimes there were AM, FM combinations that were run by a single person. But what you had happening here now is two stations become four stations, become six stations, become eight stations, and ownership puts one of those four or five former GMs in the leadership position probably gets rid of most or all of the other ones and promotes some sales leadership up. And so you have massive change going on. But anyway, when when Clear Channel bought Cats, at that time I was president of Cats Radio, the largest independent national representation firm. We worked across a broad variety of broadcasters and our focus was every market was its own market and we were the best at what we did, and we had a, a right to represent the best radio stations in that market, regardless of who owned them. And, and those, so, the business model when you were doing that was to sell ads. That's how yes. the companies made money. Yeah. On commission. But Sales when commission. that consolidation happened and all those redundancies happened, the product probably became less differentiated. Well, what, what happened was Clear Channel really redefined the landscape, and so they uh, – uh, at the time, uh, appointed a guy by the name of Randy Michaels as the CEO of radio. And Randy decided that all of the radio stations should exist in one division as clear channel radio sales with all 1,300 stations. And he and the, the CEO of Cats at the time, Stu Olds, decided that I should run this. So we started in-house, if you will, national sales company for all of the Clear Channel stations back in 1999. That was a combination of the greatest job I ever had and the worst job I ever had. It was it was great learning curve. The company had had acquired big assets in outdoor, had bought a an event touring and uh, concert tours, the actual venues, bought a business that really is the base of what Live Nation is today. And, you know, thought those things should all work together, but nobody knew how to do it. And so one of the things I got to do running the national side of radio was to be responsible for figuring out how to bring those things together. And so with the business card, I was able to get, you know, a lot of great meetings with big brands and and do some really innovative stuff. And that was also really the, the first generation of of digital strategy forming for radio. So the the fourth leg of the the stool there was the the fledgling digital assets that that Clear Channel had at the time. But uh, but what I could see through everything that we were doing was that 
a company like Clear Channel was going to have the resources to build out their own digital assets and uh, and sell their own digital engagement and, and, and so on. But most of the other companies in radio weren't going to be able to do that. And so... And that was a matter of resource? Uh, resource and, and scale to matter in the market once they... Uh, once they had a strategy, they would need to be a part of something larger to mm -hmm. to create enough interest for somebody to invest, which is interestingly one of the, the great challenges podcasting has right now because of the tremendous long tail that podcasting has. But so we we started Triton Digital for the purpose of building a digital service provider under the Clear Channel. No, 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 no. This was a a new company, so new I left company. left Clear Channel. But you took and, what you learned at Clear Channel to create Triton to solve the same problem for every operator out there. That was the that was the idea. Yeah, that was the idea, and we ended up having a great eleven year run with that business. Got to really watch at the fifty yard line everything that happened with streaming. So I was working as closely with Pandora and Spotify and a bunch of uh, of other pure play digital companies in the audio business, while at the same time working with the, the broadcast guys, watching this other market form, and really spent the first eight years at Triton pushing really, really hard for the broadcast radio folks to adopt a lot of strategies to help move their business forward. The, the, the great challenge that they all had was that broadcast radio had almost a century-long moratorium on performance rights. They didn't pay anything to play someone's song to the to the talent and the label. They would pay publish, publishing. And, and there was no pay-to-play anymore because by this time, pay-to-play was largely non-existent. Well, it was still around in nooks and crannies, but increasingly as time moved forward, there was less reason for it because you weren't, creating hits from over-the-air radio anymore. You were creating hits online. The streaming services were creating the hits. Right. And so, I mean, today that's absolutely the case. So, Were you uh, around when pay-to-play was going on? Sure, but being on the side of the industry that I was on, I was on the, the periphery of it. I didn't, you know, I wasn't working with program directors and uh, and record labels every day. I was working with advertisers with brands. and ad agencies uh, mm -hmm. every day. I so. was always curious how uh, that actually happened and who thought that was a good idea. The was same folks that, that were coaching the crew team at uh, <laughs> at, uh, at USC because it's the same, you know, how do we work our way around this right. system to get something to happen we want to happen mm -hmm. and whose pockets are we willing to stuff to get it to happen? I mean, that's... Is it true that the large majority of radio listening is done in short time frames in automobiles? When, you, when you're selling advertising, is it to that market people who are in their car for, you know, 20-minute drive time, 40-minute drive time? Or, or do people – is there evidence – you must know what, what the – Well, because, because it's a broadcast <laughs> technology. It's a one-to-many technology. You were always looking at the audience holistically. And different formats of radio perform better in different contexts and at different times of the day. And so if you're a, a radio station like Coast here in L.A., you are a huge in-office radio station, especially back in the day. People turn you on when they get to work, not necessarily in the car or at home. 
if you're a news station like KNX or KFWB back in the day or uh, KFI or a sports talk station like KLAC or, or, or ESPN, you, you tend to get the in-car and, uh, and even early morning before people get in the car listening. So there are different times of the day that drive different formats and there are different contexts. Certainly in-car is the most important and was probably forever be the most important selling point for uh, for audio period is that ability to to engage people before they make a purchase because those decisions, decisions about dinner, decisions about uh, what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, et cetera, are made during the, the drive home. And so the, the in-car aspect of, of, of radio is a huge reason the ad spend to radio built to what it, it, it built to. Has there ever been anything that even resembles the phenom Howard Stern, you know, universe that he sits on top of? I know myself that I'm heartbroken to think that he's going to stop soon. And I know that uh, my husband and I used to argue about this all the time, and I would say, how can you listen to Howard Stern? And he said to me, you can't talk to me about this unless you listen, and then you can talk to me about it. Because I was of the opinion that, oh, my God, he's an asshole. You know, he's horrible to women and this and that without ever listening to him. And now that I have the opportunity to listen to his library and realized all the years what I was missing by not listening to him, and now every time I get in my car, I listen to what's on Howard, and you feel sad sometimes when you have to get out of the there's, car. There, there's no doubt he's the greatest interviewer that ever that ever existed on on radio but i actually don't listen to the show anymore and i wouldn't i feel like howard made a turn toward hollywood and really changed who he was i have too much inside baseball yeah on the show and i don't like the way certain people were treated when that turn was made i just I, i've mm-hmm. lost respect for him can and I, can, where he is now. Can I ask you a question? You you before were making a kind of a comment on how m- much um, sort of similar DNA there is in the sort of best aspects of Howard and the best aspects of podcasts in terms of creating that personal relationship and, and connecting in a way that isn't, you know, straight advertising, but it's sort of contextualizing the client or the story of the product or whatever. What was the first podcast that you recognized as, oh, wow, this is this is really that, that interesting sort of new opportunity? Because podcasts have been around as long as the iPod has been around. So ironically, there were podcasts I, I loved before I started producing yeah, podcasts. That's what I'm asking. But but I think I found out more after okay. I started producing mm-hmm. because the story is always in the data. Yeah. And so we've done shows where, you know, the audience might be 10 or 15,000 in total for a show. But when you look at the, uh, the behavior of the listeners, so you can, through whatever platform you use, or uh, if you are an iTunes Connect customer, you can look at the, uh, the behavior of your audience on a, a very granular level. And so... I would look at things we would do in shows. This is an important feeling I have about uh, about the space and what works in advertising and what doesn't. I would see a talent do, you know, extemporaneously deliver 
an ad that was an endorsement of a product where the only thing that was stipulated by the advertiser was here's the call to action you've got to deliver, here's the URL or uh, vanity URL or promo code, and here's one branding bullet we'd like you to deliver. The rest is up to you because we want this thing to be your tone and uh, the way you communicate to your audience. And I would see the audience behavior as a straight line through those ads. No one skipping ahead, no one. And then I would look and see what happens when dynamic ads are inserted into podcasts, like typical ad breaks on radio or in-stream ad breaks. And there is a very significant audience skipping and sometimes even just plain drop-off when those kind of ads are, are put in. And then you start to, to look at the engagement around whether it's Facebook groups, individual podcast Instagram accounts, or just if you have a Patreon show, the behavior of the audience inside a platform like that, the audience is just crazy for the show. So for years, I had radio stations with hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of listeners that couldn't get the amount of attention online to their digital assets that a single show with 10 or 15,000 listeners can get in podcasts. Because look, you, you get in your car, historically, you have six presets, whatever they are, by definition, supply is limited, you make a compromised choice. No radio station had the perfect music for you. No radio station talked about exactly what, what I wanted them to talk about, exactly when I wanted them to talk about it. It was always some kind of compromise that you were making to what your real taste was in a world where you have almost infinite options, 700,000 podcast options. There is stuff for everyone, literally everyone. And so what, what I see across the board is whether your tribe is 500 or 500,000, the loyalties run really deep. Sometimes they run deeper in the 500 than they run in the 500,000. The great challenge the space has right now is, you know, everybody's talking about all of the growth and we see in the infinite dial report that just came out, another uh, major leap in uh, weekly listening and monthly listening for podcasts. And we, we see the demographics moving, nothing but, but blue sky as far as overall audience. And we hear about companies paying these enormous sums $230 million for Gimlet by, uh, by Spotify, et cetera. And we think that, you know, people on the outside think that this is just, you know, the space is on fire. So I coined a term called poverty, and uh, <laughs> uh, we'll be doing a lot on poverty and, and ways to end poverty in the, uh, uh, in the months ahead. And I did that because probably 98% of the revenue in podcasts, the ad revenue in podcasting, is going to the top 10th of 1% of shows. Mm -hmm. Not the 1%, the 10th of 1%. So if we're up to 700,000 shows, there are 350 of them right. taking 98% of the money. Go back to the widespread distribution of podcasts. I mean, when you started in the podcast business, there was nothing. There were, you know, a hand, you could have named probably all the podcasts that existed out there. 
And you created a business around this that is now wildly successful. And so I would like you to talk about how that happened, what that path was for you. Well, it's sort of like all things. You think you're going to do one thing and then you, you you end up pivoting as you see a different opportunity. So my partner in Workhouse Connect is probably the biggest talent agent in the audio business, Paul Anderson. And Paul and I have been friends for a long time. And and when we got together to form Connect, the plan was really to uh, to work with talent represented by ICM and to work with talent already represented by Workhouse and to build uh, shows around those talents. And what ends up happening is you have a lot of people come to the table who just are either told by someone, you should do a podcast. Or perhaps that talent was B-list at some point. Now they're kind of D-list. They're trying to figure out things for them to do. Well, you need to do a podcast. Let's let's get Agavino in here. Um, <laughs> and and so for the first year, it was it was Groundhog Day because it was another conference room with a, another talent who's uh, extremely talented, but has never listened to a podcast, doesn't have any great love for the medium, belief in it, desire to do one, and is basically in the room because somebody told them they should go take this meeting and is asking me what they should do. And so- uh, <laughs> They probably don't even know how to it, find So podcasts. I became very frustrated by that. What I realized was that I really needed to figure out how to work with folks that really, really wanted to do a podcast and were already engaged in the space so that I knew the the desire was authentic. And, and Rebecca's just such an amazing example <laughs> of this because I was brought into one of those kinds of meetings with Rebecca. She and I didn't know each other prior. It was set up by someone at ICM and I thought it was going to be a, a Groundhog Day session. And... <laughs> She just she just brought so much more attitude into the room than ninety nine percent of the the folks I was getting in that in that room with that you know she just made it clear that none of the obstacles mattered that you know she could will this into uh, into success and the more exposure I got to her the more I came to believe that and consistently over a period of time dropped hints at her uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't about take hints well. <laughs> how difficult this was, you know, the number of shows out there, the uh, the challenge in, in monetizing, and she just wasn't going to hear it. So Story uh, of my what life. <laughs> I, so we are, we've morphed into a combination of an independent boutique studio and a consultancy. So a lot of time is spent with talent who legitimately want to do a podcast have in have made their the, the commitment to do it but want to work with someone who can get them to either what I usually call phase 1 which is let's get a pilot or a sizzle of the show together along with the basic assets of the show and let's see if if we can shop that show to some different networks where it might fit well and and then move on. You've got a, a network relationship now and you go. Sometimes 
the project is really, really compelling to me on a personal level. So I want to do it, even if it means venturing into areas we've never ventured into before. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. So we're embarking on, this is an amazing story. This gentleman's name is Cleebone Sloan. Cleebone. Cleebone Sloan. Cleebone Sloan. Bone. Cleebone Sloan. Bone. That's a legitimate real name or a made-up name? (laughs) His mama gave him that name. I believe it's legitimate. Somebody gave him that name. His mama gave him Um, that name. It's not like the days of Hollywood where people made up names. (laughs) Bone was uh, an Athens Park blood. He was a gangbanger in in L.A. And during the Rodney King riots, Ted Koppel came out to L.A. and – and wanted to do his show live from ground zero. I don't know if you remember that, but if you Google it, uh, you'll see him with buildings burning behind him. And he wanted to talk to real gang members. I don't know exactly what the process was, but Bone is a smart guy, articulate. And he was floated somehow to ABC, I guess, as someone who might be the right fit to work with Ted Koppel. So he ends up, he was supposed to do a one night, half hour, 45 minute set with uh, Ted Koppel. He ends up doing three nights with Ted Koppel and Ted takes a real liking to him and starts really challenging him about the decisions he's making and what he's going to do with the rest of his life and, and has a significant impact on, on bone. And, and so Bone begins to turn his life around, and today he has a a really unique business where if you are a production looking to shoot on location in a gang neighborhood, you go to Bone. Wow. And Bone will go into the neighborhood, and he will figure out who's who gang-wise in the neighborhood. He'll meet with them. He will negotiate security, food services, uh, walk-on roles a whole economic package in exchange for protection of the shoot. So uh, they're going to make sure everybody's taken care of and safe and the local neighborhood economy is is going to be boosted as a result of the production coming what in. So he has story. done this for everything from Training Day to Boys in the Hood to most recently Straight Outta Compton. We spent a lot of time on set in a movie called The Tax Collector, but Bone's story is is amazing. And so we we started talking about a, a bunch of different things we might do together, and then he told me a story about the impact that the movie Colors, back in 1988, Robert Duvall, Sean Penn, Don Cheadle was the leader of the, uh, the Crips in the movie, there's a bunch of, uh, uh, Damon Wayans was in the movie, Dennis Hopper directed the movie. Colors. Um, I remember uh, there the was a, colors, uh, the, colors. The soundtrack colors, was colors. big. The <laughs> Ice-T did the, yeah. the title track. And the story around the movie was how how the streets impacted the movie, but then how the movie impacted the streets afterward. And the Bloods nationwide literally wanted Dennis Hopper dead after the movie. And I'm told that there may have at some point been an actual proposal to get Dennis Hopper because the way that the Bloods were depicted in the movie versus the way the Crips were depicted in the movie was very offensive to the Bloods. 
And so the ripple of events that came about as a result of that are pretty incredible. And so what we're doing is a series where we take each of these movies that I've mentioned and talk about the impact the street had on the film and then the impact the film had on the street afterward. Wow. And, uh, I love uh, this. And Bone, Bone's experiences. So the last thing I'll say on Bone, the, on the last day of shooting straight out of Compton, you probably remember the news clip of Suge Knight in the truck yeah. running over the two people, yeah. killing the one guy, putting the other in the hospital with bad injuries. Yeah. The other in the hospital with bad injuries was Bone. Oh, wow. no kidding. Wow. And, uh, and so the, the kinds of stories from the street that this guy uh, can bring, they just are so interesting to me that – I was like, yeah. we have to, we, we have, have to, to do, do it. this. Yeah. So, um, uh, so sometimes we'll we'll do that. We have a a biopic coming out later on the life of Louis Armstrong that uh, we did with Reno Wilson. Again, it was so different and so interesting that we had to do it. Now, whether that will be a commercial success or not, yeah, don't know. I mean, that's the challenge with limited run shows and podcasts. Think about we were just upstairs talking about. 100 episodes of, of Say It Forward, right? Right. And here, this is a production with significant costs for an audio production. That's six episodes in total. Mm -hmm. To monetize that investment in six episodes is very difficult. So if you're going to do that kind of a show, you're really playing for what you believe can be the derivative values of that IP. So And finding a big audience, much like they did with Serial and they did with uh, – I mean, I, I'm a junkie listener to well, – I, I love podcasts. So I just was – I scanned through uh, Dirty John like I couldn't stop listening to it. So it took me two days to listen to the entire thing. And it sounds – if I – the one that you just talked about, you get that hook and people won't stop listening to it and they'll listen to it till it's done. And they love this. I mean, the whole thing about podcasting is that for the most part, it's uninterrupted. The little commercial breaks are insignificant. They're not annoying. And people are gripped by these stories. You know, the whole concept that we have in doing Say It Forward is that we're lucky enough to know people like you yeah. who have really interesting stories. And Leanne, Kim, and myself really believe that we are sort of voyeurs into your life, right? Because <laughs> everybody wants to know the story. And when we talked about, you know, the pleasure of interviewing you, the one thing that I really wanted to understand is you're a pioneer in a podcasting space that didn't really, even if it did exist, you know, when the iPhone came out, nobody was really talking about it. Now, everybody's talking about podcasts, and they're talking about the fact that they're getting really unfiltered content that some sensor is not blocking out, you know, a clump of it. And people get to listen to stories that are either true stories like this conversation that we're having with you or, you know, episodic stories like Dirty John. And it's, it's amazing. What, what you find out, I, I was just to say that, uh, that radio was everybody's favorite thing to do while they were doing something else. Most of us treated it as a background, a soundtrack for life, a soundtrack for the drive, a soundtrack for the workday, a soundtrack for doing something around the house. Right. But most of the activities we were doing while listening were 
pretty brainless activities, many of them. And so what's happened with podcast is it's turned the tide around much the way that Stern did, where people are realizing that it's a lot more fun to be engaged in the car, to be engaged on the treadmill, right. to be engaged skiing down the mountain or whatever it is, as opposed to just having something happening in the background. Mm -hmm. What podcasting has done is it's made audio deep again. Yeah. I mean, there's right. there's real opinion out there. And uh, like it or not, I mean, yeah. all sides of the political spectrum and, and all sides of just about every issue on uh, on planet Earth. It's out there. If you have a thirst for it, you're going to get it somewhere in mm -hmm. that 700,000. And that's why this is not a, uh, unlike a lot of developments in uh, the digital age, this is not something that starts with 16-year-olds and then eventually gets to the 30-year-olds. This is something that started with the 30-year-olds. And it did because I think and Serial had a lot to do with this, I think people found out, and this is exactly what happened to me, is I found out how much more I enjoy my brain working when I'm in the car than being asleep. I have my little earbuds with me everywhere I go. And ev almost without exception, whenever I'm walking or I'm driving or I'm whatever I'm doing, I'm on the treadmill, I'm in Pilates, I've got my little ear pods in and I'm listening to something. And it's a, it's a whole thing that's changed. And it certainly has changed my life. I want to be listening to things that are informational all the time and you get sucked up into it. And so it's extremely exciting. And for you to be right at the crossroads of this and you have one of my, I listen to AJ Benz's show Every time I get in my Fame car. Fame is a bitch. He is such an awesome guy. And I love listening to him. I mean, sometimes he's super annoying, and other times he's unbelievably funny. And he reminds me of that same sucked-in feeling that I had when I listened to Howard. Like, I don't want to get out of the car until I hear the end of the story. <laughs> I just The old Howard. I mean, he's – and he's really – to a degree, a byproduct of the old Howard. He yeah, was, he's great. He was on the, the show great. more than 100 times. Actually, got Howard got him in a fight on the show <laughs> with Donald Trump. Howard exposed the fact that they were both dating the same girl at the same time. Oh, like Howard and Donald were dating the same girl at the same time? AJ and Donald were dating the same girl at the same time. <laughs> it's a and Howard story. exposed it on the show. Oh, my God. And AJ threatened to kill Trump live on the show. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he's look. He is only in radio. He is so nonstop funny. in a world where many things are are uh, non-binary these days. AJ is about as binary as it gets. Yes, so he is. Uh, <laughs> you know, not for the faint of heart, but for those that likes uh, to walk with a leash. Uh, yeah, you know. I mean, and what a storyteller! Yeah. I would got. like to know how you find an audience, and you're when you sit in the in the seat that you're in where you're dealing with people who are, everybody has a podcast idea today, obviously 700,000 of them, but how do you find an audience? Well, I was talking about how, how Workhouse Connect has, uh, uh, has evolved since we started it. And I mentioned poverty and, and ending poverty. Where I really wanna go with our company, where we are going with our company is to focus on the technologies, the strategies that can bring value to the folks with 500 and 5,000, not just the folks with 500,000. And I have a deep belief that the solution for the 
folks with 505,000 is not an ad tech solution. It's not stuffing a bunch of ads in those shows. It's about the intimate connection and extracting value out of that connection while providing great value in that connection. Um, and, and, and you uh, mean the connection of the host and the interests of the host and the audience yes. to the product. Yes. So it's this this contextualizing. Yes. So a lot of focus in the space is, is ad technology uh, so that ads can be bought machine to machine programmatically, as they say, based upon targeting criteria known or estimated uh, about the consumer on the other end. Right, what I've seen happen in over-the-air radio and the the damage that ad load did to that business, what I see in the behavior of the audience in the podcast space, whether it's to a show of five thousand or a show of five hundred thousand, is that you're not going to solve the challenge of building a business for that show with five thousand by connecting into programmatically purchased brand ads at the kind of CPMs that that, that yeah. stuff goes for. It can't, be so, it can't be generic. It has to be specific. So we're devoting ourselves to solutions for those kinds of talents that might also work well for someone who has 100,000 or 200,000. But the other thing that's happening besides the ad tech investment is the Netflix of podcast strategy that – uh, multiple players are going after where where on one hand, I, I agree with them very much that the audience would probably rather pay and listen without advertising than especially go through a podcast loaded with radio-like inventory loads. But I, I find that individuals have one or two or three maybe because – you only have so much time to devote to audio. I love podcasts, but a podcast isn't going to get me to not watch billions. It's not going to get me. To, I mean, I have <laughs> where, where my entertainment time is that's visual. It's not going to go away. Right. So I only have so much time for audio. And for most people, that means one or two or maybe three shows that are regular shows, things that come in as limited run series and stuff are a little different, but I only have that many shows that, and if I'm a, a loyalist to fame as a bitch and there's only one other show I listen to, if AJ asks me to do something, like AJ's now got his own app that he wants me to download because there are unique things that he's going to do through that app that are going to allow me to engage even more deeply with them. And I'm not going to have to download 35 apps because I don't listen to 35 mm -hmm. podcasts. Right. And I don't want to go pay whatever I've got to pay to Spotify to get the shows that they have under inside their wall garden or pay to Luminary or, uh, or one of these other. I, I have a couple of shows I love. And if that particular creator has their own assets and can let me in, bring me in more deeply where I have the opportunity to buy merch. I have the opportunity to participate 
in the show, I have the opportunity to get first crack at events and just different things that I'm able to do. I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to to that creator and I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. It's such an days. exciting opportunity. The podcast space is very new and thrilling and exciting. And on the note that I want to point out that I've noticed that you won the weight loss bet between you and AJ. Okay, just saying. <laughs> but, but if we yeah. if we uh, <laughs> Uh, I've definitely gained it all back since then, uh, and he's that was actually, so funny when you he's two were actually battling behaving, over the... behaving a little better than uh, so than funny. I am right now. He hasn't had a drink. I'm in, sensitive yeah, a few to months. everybody's time. Yeah, here. I just I want to just acknowledge something before we end this thing, and and that is this this idea of poverty and wanting to help people navigate their business as podcasters. As well as your your obvious passion for bringing maybe under under represented or under uh, told stories. I, that's like a clunky way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate that because a lot of times those aren't going to be big scalable businesses, but they're important in the context of what podcasts can do. And it sounds like that's something you, you have a, a ton of time for. I tend to look at a situation and not look at the at the leader of the pack, look at companies or people down the line and and wonder why they're where they are and and what kept them from um, from getting to the top and and AJ's a, a great story with that because here's somebody who was flying you know really high at, at one point in his career and you know he screwed it up and you know never built a social following he you know was he missed his, that boat. his biggest days were <laughs> the 90s yeah he didn't have email addresses of fans. He didn't have thousands even of followers on any social platform. And so we had to start it from the bottom up. But we knew that you know, virality would kick in at certain points because his his history and his stories were too big right. for that not to happen. Ironically, the show exploded because of the New Yorker story that exposed Harvey Weinstein because – in a bunch of the follow-up, AJ's name surfaced as somebody who had, I mean, misidentified most of the time, but people went everywhere from calling him a friend to uh, Harvey's fixer to a number of, of different, uh, uh, of different things. But, but his, his association with Harvey and to the point where Tom Arnold became convinced that AJ had pictures of Donald Trump beating Melania in an elevator. Yeah. You may have heard. I did hear that. And that uh, MGM has a whole treasure trove of things in their vaults that are... Those those kinds of things do... Yeah, whatever it takes to break it out, right? uh, For for a show. So, uh, but the big head start, uh, which ultimately is why, you know, Rebecca's show belongs in 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 a big network today, is because you either have your own large social following or the ability on your own to get guest slots on a lot of popular podcasts. If you don't have those two things, it happening organically without them is a long ride. And even the best cream takes a long time to start rising. Right. And so, uh, thank uh, you. You know, it's it's social promotion and uh, and promotion on other podcasts. Nothing beats promotion on other podcasts. That'll get some people. 
exposed to the show. Well, and I want to thank you a lot. It's great spending time I with told you. you there was a lot to talk about. Yeah, it was a really good story. Really good. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Next time, you'll meet TV and film veteran comedy writer and producer Robin Schiff. She developed the characters Romy and Michelle, which later served as the basis for the hit film which she wrote, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. She was creator and producer of the CBS sitcom Almost Perfect and a writer for the comedy series Gross Point. Robin was a member of the improv comedy troupe The Groundlings with Pee Wee Herman and Phil Hartman. Robin was an executive producer for the multi-generational relationship comedy series Swipe Right for YouTube Red and is working on a musical based on her characters and her movie, Romy and Michelle. So join us when we find out what it is like being a woman working in a man's comedy world when we rewind to the beginning with Robin Schiff on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram.